Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome back to now. No opportunity wasted. I'm your host, Angelica Ross. And as always, I'll be quoting Buddhism day by day, wisdom for modern modern life by my mentor, Daisaku Ikeda. And if you want to be able to read these words of encouragement for yourself, there's a few ways that you can do so. You can, of course, order the book wherever you like to purchase your books or visit one of our Buddhist centers around the world. Or you can download one of my favorite apps, Chant Buddy, and every day that you open it up, it gives you a different Buddhist quote. All right, so the Buddhist word for today, Monday, March 4th, says, quote, life is an everlasting struggle with ourselves. It's a tug of war between moving forward and regressing, between happiness and unhappiness. Outstanding individuals didn't become great overnight. They disciplined themselves to overcome their weaknesses, to conquer their lack of caring and motivation, until they became true victors in life. One reason Buddhists chant Nam Myoho Renge Kyo each day is to develop strong will and discipline and the ability to tackle any problem seriously with the determination to overcome it. So one of the reasons that I love sharing this practice with you is in hopes that you might understand me just a little bit more as I feel more courageous sharing these moments when I'm struggling with that tug of war. It's been a struggle. And of course, I know that I'm not alone in experiencing that struggle right now. Social media has us so conditioned to only sharing the highlights, but I think it's about time that we start being more transparent about what we're all dealing with. I know firsthand how hard that can be, so I'm going to try and use this podcast to attempt to model that transparency. Now, of course, I'm still going to be selective with what I'm sharing. Mindfulness is a cornerstone of Buddhist practice, so I will do my best to be mindful about what personal details I share with you. But I just want you all to know that I'm struggling too. My challenges just look different than some of yours, and some of my challenges are exactly the same. I've been beating myself up more than I should lately, like with producing this podcast. It's been way harder than I let on to. I'm trying to write the script, produce, and host at the same time. And there are moments when I'm not doing the best because I might be cutting off my guests because I'm looking at the time clock and trying to produce the questions and segments at the same time. Or I'm getting lost in my enthusiasm for the topic at hand. So there have been a couple of moments where I've been struggling there a little bit. And I just want you all to know 
that I am working daily to get better and better at listening, moderating the conversation, and making sure that each episode is truly an engaging and enlightening conversation and not just me dominating the conversation. So I pinky swear to get better and better. Now, depending on where, uh, when some of these conversations air, you might still see me getting a hang of that for a little bit, but hang in there with me and I promise you won't regret it. Now, before we get to my conversation with Jinx Monsoon, I just want to discuss a few things that have been in the headlines last week. All right, for starters, Vice President Kamala Harris called for an immediate ceasefire. And as the people started clapping, she continued for the next six weeks. So listen, I'm not going to start clapping just yet. It was a lot of coded language in that press release, still leaving a loophole for Israel to bomb its way through. So I'll definitely continue to pay attention and see where this goes. But it's just a lot to emphasize that there's a deal on the table and that Hamas has to agree to it. When I know it's been reported, I heard, I saw, I was reading that Hamas previously asked for a ceasefire in exchange for the hostages and Israel declined the offer. Also, unfortunately, the Biden administration has just been proving themselves to be untrustworthy. Recently, they just airdropped food into Gaza instead of enforcing sanctions on Israel while also trying to send Israel more weapons. Baby, if playing both sides of the fence were a person, it would be the Biden administration. In other news, it's a day that ends in Y, and another video of police brutality has gone viral. It's a video that only seems to capture the incident at the point when an officer has a black man pinned to the ground on the side of a highway and is, of course, using excessive force. Selena Morrison, executive director of the mayor's office in Philadelphia, was trying to explain to the officer that that man was her husband and that she actually works for the mayor. When we start seeing the camera, I guess, falling down or you, you hear the cop eventually screaming at them that this was a simple traffic stop and that they were tailgating him without their lights on. And as he's explaining all of this, it is obvious to me that the cop was scared and overreacting. The cop also stated that his body cam was running and that it was also recording, which Selena replied, well, basically, good, because he eventually then accused them both of resisting arrest. And according to the video that we saw, that's just not what was happening at all. She was standing there recording him as he was using excessive force on her husband and threatening to take him down even though he was already pinned to the pavement. So I just want to take this moment to remind you that President Biden is pushing to create 69 cop cities across the United States and that they're calling those public safety training facilities. Yeah, I need you folks to pay attention to what's going on here. More money and more training has not been working with police across America. We need better solutions. We need our money to stop going to war and to start actually giving people resources, giving the people what we need and what we don't need is more police. 
Now, on a lighter note, are y'all watching the new Avatar and the last Airbender live on uh, Netflix? The live action series? Child, my poor heart. I am a, a huge fan, a really huge fan of the animated series on Nickelodeon. I uh, Somewhere around this house, I have like the, the box series of all the books. I also have The Legend of Korra. It's one of my favorite, my all-time favorite series, mostly because it's basically a Buddhist series. I mean, you know, the airbenders are basically monks. If I had children, it would be the only cartoon I would be allowing my children to watch. There are just so many poignant messages. And so to watch the live action uh, rendition, I heard that previous attempts weren't so great. But this one, the special effects are amazing. The casting is point on, like spot on. But also, I just find myself getting so emotional watching the series because (sighs) you know how some of us like to vicariously live through some of these superhero stories and stuff like that. You know, part of me likes to think that I might be one of the last Avatar airbenders. You know, just, just... It's just great to vicariously live through these things that is calling you to make these tough decisions. Like the avatar was frozen in time. So when he's unfrozen, he's still a young kid. So he has to learn that it's not just about having the ability to run away from your enemies, but you're going to have to stand up and fight. And you're going to have to sometimes make decisions that means giving to some while others are suffering and going without and being that kind of leader. And I know as I come into certain spaces and I'm trying to fight intersectionally for everybody, I'm trying to leave nobody behind. Um, It's just so inspiring to watch a series like this. Um, I know it's just a series, but it just has such deep, deep meaning for me. So I'm enjoying it. I hope you enjoy it too. Another series I kind of got wrapped up into was season six of um, Love is Blind. Child, uh, are you watching Love is Blind? Oh my goodness. My friend um, and incredible singer-songwriter Kia Harper was braiding my hair and you know, it takes a while. So I got hooked back into watching that damn show, y'all, and it's a mess. But unfortunately, unfortunately, I can't help but tune into the mess. And AD got the whole place shook low-key i'm watching and thinking to myself i think i could probably do something like that but then i remind myself that it is produced and ain't no way i'm putting myself in a situation to have my emotions manipulated no ma'am but still i can enjoy the entertainment last but not least i'm catching up on abbott elementary and when i tell you that miss ava the principal is in her own little world and i am loving every minute of it Everyone on the show is truly amazing. The writing's incredible. It's funny. It has so much heart. But that Janelle James, she seems to me like the kind of person who would entertain herself for days on end. And I can definitely relate because I'd be up in this house by myself just cracking up. Ain't nobody else around but me. Anyway, one of the best lessons I've learned is just how to enjoy my own company. And I do. I enjoy myself. All right. So that wraps up the now what portion of the podcast. So now let's get into my kiki with Miss Jinx Monsoon. 
All right. Welcome back to Now No Opportunity Wasted. I'm your host, Angelica Ross. And right now, ladies and gentlemen, actually now and seems like perpetually, it is monsoon season because we have none other than the Jinx Monsoon with us right now. How are you doing, Jinx? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you. How are you? <laughs> I, 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 am, I am doing great. Uh, I am just so honored to like be in a space where I'm just seeing folks like us take up so much space that was not really offered to us before. Yeah. You, you, you know what I mean? Uh, so I, I'm just going to jump right in. Um, okay, go for it. Talk to me about uh, the transition from sort of being your local mm-hmm. queen celebrity that, cause I, I you know, I, I know that you didn't just start doing drag when RuPaul's Drag Race <laughs> called. Yeah. Um, so what was the transition like to you from being a local uh, queen to being a name that everybody knows? Well, it was like a multi-tiered, multi-step process. And that makes it sound like a pyramid scheme. But it was like, you know, it was, I started doing drag at this point over 20 years ago, like 21 years ago, mm. um, right here in Portland, Oregon, where I live once more. And, you know, drag and queer communities are so regional, you know, and then the drag is so shaped by the queer community that it exists within and the city that it exists within. So I feel like I had this really wonderfully progressive, um, privileged, advanced queer experience growing up in Portland and getting to start drag at age 15 and uh, that's that's amazing and can you think about that like you being able to start drag at 15 and then there's this also this conversation in America right now that drag is not something they want our youth to be able to have access to yeah you know for me and I think for so many people my age or around my age who started drag at similar points in their life I would argue that it saved our lives, you know, that it it gave us an outlet. It gave us somewhere to feel strong and confident when life was beating us down. And I feel so privileged that I was in a family and in a city. No one ever, no one in my life close to me really ever questioned that it was like corrupting my morality they were just like how late are you staying out who's giving you a ride home you (laughs) know I was really privileged in that um so I I I I definitely was doing drag for a while but as far as the industry goes like I was completely green I went I, I I refer to it as overnight success because I went from being you know like a pretty good drag queen locally in Seattle and Portland to yeah, winning drag race season five. And that like took me up this step, but drag race, you know, 12 years ago, wasn't what it is today. So you then, do, did, did you do, you didn't just do season five, you did all stars as well, right? I did all stars, but that was a decade later. Right. And so when I say it was like this multi-step thing, it was like, I was really hustling 
between season five and all stars seven, because I very distinctly and (laughs) adamantly chose the theater path as what I was going to do. And, you know, we have so many Queens who have carved out their own paths. Like Bianca is a stand-up comedian who sells out everywhere she goes. Adore Delano's a rock star, you know, um, uh, Sasha Colby, Violet Chachki, like all the winners you can think of have like something that they really are like bringing Mm -hmm. and i chose theater and theater was a harder path and a less like talked about path when i chose it 10 years ago but baby let me tell you something (laughs) let me tell you something you were mopping the girls up with that theater that's the only thing is like you know some sometimes you you come in you know i got my girls or whatever and then i hear here i see you and I'm like, oh shit! Like she is about to mop these girls clean up with these acting chops. But I think that that is what, because you've been in theater obviously before Drag mm-hmm. Race, and so I think obviously myself as well. I grew up in theater, doing twelve years of community theater, learning yeah. movement and um, you know, dance and all these different things or what have you. So you came to the table of Drag Race with those skills, but. What did Drag Race pull out of you the first time around? Um, The first time around, definitely it was like, okay, now if you want to do this as a career, let's start taking this seriously and do it as a career, you know? (laughs) And I'd like to say that I was really, really ready for it because I had all the ambition and I had all the drive, but I did not have the discipline. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, that's where the overnight success comes in because like anything that you have not yet addressed when you get that overnight success, it's like putting a magnifying on you, a magnifying glass on you. And then all of those things you haven't really examined about yourself are suddenly so much bigger than they used to feel. And it just puts you in a little bit of a pressure cooker. And when you don't have like kind of the wherewithal to know like how to navigate all of that, you know, for some of us, our worst qualities like flare up, uh, cut to me now being almost five years sober from alcohol. And that was like a big turning point for me. That was That's like, amazing. you know, that was when I really realized like I need to find joy in the work that I do without any crutch, without any substance to make sure I'm still doing work that I love. And when I kind of examined all of that, I made a pact with myself and I alerted everyone. Like I only want to really work on the stuff that I believe in from here on out. And I've been, you know, lucky that I've had the opportunities to create work where um, work that I didn't feel passionate about existed. No, you know, and 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 one thing that I love about Drag Race that it has kind of hammered home for folks is that it's more than just pretty outfits and 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 stones. And you know, I know there's a lot of critique <laughs> for the girls who who can't sew. You know, but. <laughs> You know, so is not everything. So you know, if you especially if you I got would a love to see the like same that. outrage for when a girl can't deliver a joke. You know, it's like it's like people will read a girl for not like being yes. funny, but they let it slide. 
But like, if she can't sew, it's like, oh, we can talk about for a week. But it's like, God damn it. I would, I, I can't watch a dress on stage, you know? <laughs> no, absolutely. They always say, don't rely on that body. Don't rely on that face, you know? And, and don't rely on those clothes. Because, you know, coming up, what I know, the, the one thing that's, the one thing that I know is behind a lot of us as black folks who watch Drag Race and see, you know, uh, the black and brown queens that come on is coming from Chicago. Mm-hmm. Uh, I worked with a lot of the queens, Shea Coulee, um, there's Casey Ortiz, there's a lot of a, a lot, Dita, um, Dita Swag, you know, there's a lot of the girls that come from there. And in Chicago, it is a very segregated experience, even within the LGBT community. Like we go to certain bars. And they kind of let their DJs know not to play certain type of music so that, you know, the crowds don't get a certain type of way or what have you. And you see that these girls, like when we talk about being trans um, versus being a cisgender gay person within our community, you know, trans people struggling to find employment, struggling to find opportunities, then to rub those nickels together to find cat fair, makeup, and a dress to put on a show, you know, know you're, you're trying to do those things. So they're in Chicago, where I came from, a lot of the girls, you know, did not make the stage or, you know, there were just, they were in these kind of almost like cattle call like shows where there was just like a bunch of people in there. But from that space, what you would see is girls who barely had, they couldn't sew, they didn't really have great outfits, but you mm-hmm. could see that they were talented and that they had something. And that's one thing that I love watching about Drag Race is I love seeing the girls with the pretty outfits and the rhinestones and things like that. But I love seeing what happens when they're putting on, on a playing field where those things are kind of stripped yeah. away and you got to show us something <laughs> else. Did you, did you have your eyes set on Broadway uh, when you were, um, did you, was it in your eyesight? It was in, pretty much in drag race always there you know it was pretty much there my whole life because as soon as I found out there was a place that you could sing and act and be funny and wear big exciting costumes all at the same time I was like okay so there it is that's what I want to (laughs) do and then I saw drag and I was like oh that's exactly like Broadway but it's like something I can do now and so I always saw drag as kind of like Mm -hmm. I would be in my theater school shows or I'd be in my high school theater productions and I'd be playing Jack in Into the Woods, but I wanted to play the witch. So then that weekend at my club, I was doing numbers from Into the Woods with me as the witch. And, you know, (laughs) that's where I was living out the roles that I knew I was actually suited for, Um, even though... Uh, society uh-huh. had labeled me as male, so I had to play certain roles because, um, as another teacher later in life told me, um, our culture wasn't ready to see um, uh, cross-gendered performances, specifically male to female, if they were meant to be earnest and honest. They could be comedic, but they couldn't mm-hmm. be earnest mm-hmm. and honest. And 
some of the best work I've done in my life has been a vendetta, uh, <laughs> like has been like to prove someone wrong. And so pretty it. much my whole life, I I've been it. kind of like on this trajectory of like, I'm going to show that any actor can play any role if it makes sense for that actor to be playing that role. And I know that there's like that opens up a lot of gray area. And I think within that, there's the nuance of, should we have certain actors play these roles? Just because it could make sense. What are we going to get from this person playing this role? But I do feel that we shouldn't be casting Absolutely. roles based on what's between our legs. It should be based on who shows up and plays the character. Chicago and talk about Broadway. Uh, it was one of the most profound experiences of my life. Um, for me, it was an opportunity to affirm that I, <laughs> that I had it. You know, that I had what it takes to do this, to, to be in this position. Tell me about that first moment when you said, after you said yes, <laughs> after you after you went to the first <laughs> rehearsal, what was the conversation like with yourself? First of all, affirmation is the biggest word that I can think of from my experience in Chicago. And it's such a... It's such a wonderful experience if you show up ready to let it be. You know, that's everything in life. If you show up ready to take on the experience and meet the experience and bring your best to it so you can get the best from it, that's the secret, really. But <laughs> but it was so incredible. I had imposter syndrome every step of the way. Um, pretty much I had to come up with a mantra, which I'm known for, but, uh, <laughs> my mantra for this, it's kind of a lengthy one. I don't know if it counts, but, um, I would say everyone in the room has been doing this of a hell of a lot longer than you have. And none of them seem the slightest bit stressed out. So it would be silly for me, the newcomer to be stressed out. Like, I know I still got to learn my lines. I know wow. I'm not hitting these notes perfectly. I know we only got like seven more days, right? <laughs> but no one else in the room is stressing out. So it would be silly for me who knows the least about what I'm doing. <laughs> so it's kind of like acknowledging my imposter syndrome and then shutting it down at the same time. That's amazing. You know, I, I, I just remember after the first rehearsal that I did with Greg Butler in, um, in here in Chicago, uh, after that first dance rehearsal, my body was screaming. Now, mind you, I'm doing uh, Roxy and the, you know, all of the choreography, especially like me and my baby and all these things or whatever. And my body was just absolutely screaming. Uh, I could not believe, I was like, how am I doing this for, seven eight performances a week uh for you know i was terrified of losing my voice uh and having to try to maintain my voice within you know eight shows what was it like for you i had to live like a nun a little bit um what was it like for you coming <laughs> into that space and that schedule um well let's be honest 
my character stands and sings and <laughs> I don't have any choreography. So <laughs> I didn't have to, I didn't have to, um, put my body through what you had to other than wearing a corset all, <laughs> all freaking day. But, um, uh, what I can say is I did have vocal issues and that is the worst freaking nightmare, right? Like to be on a Broadway stage having vocal issues. And honestly, it was like what I've always dreaded the most. And then I had to look at the circumstances. Mm -hmm. I had to be really, really honest mm -hmm. with myself. I have never done eight shows a week in such a high pressure situation. I had really gone from project to project last year because you know how it is. Like when the iron's hot, of baby. Course you, yeah, of course you want to take care of yourself. And I feel like I really did. I really do feel like I took care of myself along the way, but I had to sacrifice all personal time basically to make sure that I was putting down bricks in 2023. Absolutely. <laughs> you know? Absolutely. So I had to acknowledge that I had put myself through a lot. My voice was showing me that it had been through a lot. And so saw a doctor, I was on medication, some of it, and I had some squeaky performances and some croaky performances and I really beat myself up. But again, no one else, no one else was beating me up. I was the only one beating myself Same. up. The audience wasn't the, the cast. And then it was towards the end of the run, but I cannot say enough how freeing this moment was. Because until this moment, we're talking about little squeaks, little croaks, things that I was able to play off, right? But in this moment, towards the end of my run, um, Bianco Marroquin and I are, are singing class. And it's the second, you know, what became of class mm -hmm. so on the of I don't know what happened. Like my throat just wouldn't make a noise. And it wasn't like, it just was like something got stuck. Something wasn't happening. And it was just like, <sighs> it, it was indescribable. And she, Bianca looks at me and I'm looking at her and we're both kind of like, can't believe what's happening. And then just start laughing and we grab each other's faces and we just laugh. And then we look out to the audience and sing the final note perfectly. And I was like, I just did that on Broadway. Yeah. I just did that on Broadway. And then we all just thought it was hilarious because I didn't freak out. I didn't, I stayed as in the moment as I possibly could. I was so in the moment that Bianca and I were like, that's our not, souls like, were screaming were watching, at each other. I were watching <laughs> that, that sounds to me like one of those magical moments that you can't script. You, you know what I mean? Right? Especially if you stay in character, it's one of those things that like exactly. really plays well. And it just kind of taught me that like, in, in that moment, it was again, my worst fear happening and everything was okay and the world didn't end and the producer didn't call me and say you're out you know like it wasn't written about like if if people wrote about it i didn't see it so because i didn't go looking for right, it so you right. know what i was like if that can happen and i can survive i got I, I i can do i can do this and i'm not saying the imposter syndrome's gone but i am saying that affirmation we were talking about, mm -hmm. what it was, mm -hmm. was like, you can 
you can fucking have a stumble and you can trip or something and you can hiccup and it's not fun. It sucks. And you want to do everything you can to avoid it. But, um, but they happen. And you, and if you don't crumble, no one, no one else is going to make you crumble. You know, you know? And, and I think that is so important what you're, what you're talking about. And I think, I think when it comes to the business and show business, I think so many people are very focused on the show aspect and on just the output of it, of it all. And, you know, just during this conversation alone, I heard you talk about the hustle and, you know, sort of the <laughs> journey and dealing with these sort of things. You know, one of the things, uh, the downsides of this industry, and I've heard uh, uh, Tracy Ross talk about it. I've heard you know, maybe Shirley, Ralph, and various folks talk about the fact that when you're in this business, you might not get the recognition always at the time that you are, you know, doing the things that you're doing. But when you are an artist and you are an actor and you are dedicated to the craft, you do it because of that relationship to the craft because mm -hmm. of, and you know, because when I did Chicago, there's a little tea in my spill. When I did when I did <laughs> Chicago, Shirley Ralph, uh, I saw Shirley Ralph in, in New York and she convinced me to do Chicago because I, I went to her and I was like, you know, I got this offer. They want me to do, you know, the Chicago, but girl, the money is not cute. It's not what I want, you know, blah, blah, blah. So she was like, listen, that's how it is. Uh she's <laughs> like, they pretty much are gonna lowball anybody they can lowball, you know, and uh, not only that, but also just, you don't have to say nothing to this, but those particular <laughs> producers are kind of known, uh, for, they just known the girls know those girls, the girls know those girls, but uh, that's all I'll say there. The girls know those girls. Um, but what I, I was dealing with this space of feeling my body being beat up eight shows a week. And also calculating some days how much that broke down to my fee broke down to per show. And, you know, it just the, the calculations weren't quite adding up to me. <laughs> uh, but two things were very, very clear to me. Two things were very, very clear. One, this was a moment that was not about them as much as it was about me as an artist and, as a, 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 and having this affirmation that I have what it takes to be on Broadway and to lead a role on Broadway, as well as the moment that it would be for those that come behind me that understand, you know, what it takes to be in this space and, and to understand that even someone like me as a black trans woman who might not feel as valued as I think I should, because here's this historical moment, here's these things, but I don't see me on the playbill. I don't see any advertisements in Times Square. I'm not on the late night show. I'm not doing any of these things that didn't have this experience. But then when I look over at the other uh, actors who have been punching that clock, some of them for like 20 plus years in those roles and know that even behind the scenes when I was in there, we were signing paperwork for the equity, um, the union to try to fight for better wages for Broadway performers. You know, they're constantly trying to get these better wages. And at the same time, these folks are working so hard 
there, I mean, and when I even got there, I remember as I was coming off of the stage doing me and my baby and I was like winded. And one of them, <laughs> one of them grabbed me. They were just like, listen, we just want to thank you for being very real about your experience with this because some actors will come in and they act like it's, 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 they're not as, you know, feeling it as much as they are. So then the ones that have been there forever, kind of because they've been there forever, they can't let their sort of guard down and show that they're a little fatigued as well. And you realize that they also know that at the stage door is a line of people ready to take their place. Yeah. <laughs> As an artist, you, what is that? What? Is, how, how have you sort of reconciled with this space of knowing that you have to show up and you have <laughs> to be on your mark, while also knowing that you might not always be valued at the moment for the t for the work that you're putting in. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Yeah, you know, I think you touched on so much, <laughs> but I think I can start with, I choose my battles and I mean that in many different ways, mm -hmm. you know, cause you know, we all have done the gig as a favor for a friend. We've done the gig because it was something we wanted to do, you know, um, but it's about kind of like finding that balance between like saying like, I know <laughs> that I'm going to take less money from this gig, but it's something I really, really want to do. It's something my audience is going to love me doing. It's something I've all like, and then, um, again, what you bring to it is what you get from it. Like you're talking about the, the, the cast of Chicago talk about that. It was one of the most in, like I walked in and it was like, I had been there for 20 years with family. Them. They just welcomed me in so much. It was immediate family mm -hmm. and chosen family and finding those families in the moment in circumstance is very important to me as an actor, as a queer person. And just, it was so hard to leave for that reason and everything you were just saying, like I was seeing these people, just incredible, incredible performers. Like I learned so much acting alongside them, watching them every night, just in my little chair, you know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it was just all around an incredible experience. So then it's kind of like, so I, 
I said yes to that, and maybe the money wasn't as good as I could have made in three months doing something else. But that's why I'm now going to go do this tour that's going to be low overhead, because, <laughs> and they're going to pay me a bunch of money to do, you know, uh, half of what I do on stage. Well, like, me, I don't me, have artistic control, but I'm going to pimp myself out a little bit to cover the losses. Well, let, let me even point that so out I because find the balance. you're doing, <laughs> did that, did that free, like, cause for me, what it felt like for me after I did eight shows a week, I got done with that. And I was like, <laughs> I can do anything. I felt like I could fly. Exactly. Exactly. And you were talking about living like a nun. I had to do that as well. And that shift in taking care of myself, like, like I said, I'm almost five years sober from alcohol, but unlearning like the way you live when you work in nightlife, you're maintaining a substance abuse problem. You're, you haven't hit rock bottom because your career is still chugging along. So you're fooling people enough, but you're not fooling your body. Yes. And it's getting harder and harder. So when I finally like had something to motivate me to get back into a better routine and to like wake up earlier, eat healthier, be, it, it started me back on this kind of like remembering I can do really cool fucking shit. Mm -hmm. I can do a lot mm -hmm. when, when I apply myself. And since then, you know, I, I like Chicago made me feel like I was back in college in a way because it was like every day I had my schedule, my schedule could vary a little bit, a but little otherwise, bit. Yeah. and anyone who wants to see me, it's like, here's my time and you can see me then, or you can come to my place and say good night and tuck me into bed because otherwise I'm working, you know? <laughs> I was actually trying to date someone during that time, which was absolutely <laughs> foolish. You know, and I, I, I knew that was foolish. It was just this, there was this girl that I was seeing actually when I was uh, in New York, uh -huh. and I felt terrible because, you know, I'm I'm newly queer in this space too, and you know, now I'm I'm definitely mm -hmm. open and available, but I was not open and available to her, and I felt so bad about it because I just I would pass out. But she was so great because she was like, I just want to be here for you. I know you're, uh, you know, so she was just like the sweetest thing. But I felt bad because I felt like it was, you know, kind of one sided. But what that showed me was, I think that it gave me permission to have that kind of discipline for whatever I wanted. Meaning like, mm -hmm. I, I, I realized that I didn't just have to have this kind of discipline around my schedule when it came to Broadway, but I could actually apply that same kind of mindset where I'm not wasting a lot of my time pulling me off mark. You know, you got these folks yeah. who are doing Broadway where after they're done, the next day they're in a dance class. You know, I'm doing, yeah. I'm doing vocal lessons in between, you know, in between the things like that's just a part of the routine. Yeah. It reminded me about the work side mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. the craft. You know, we talk a lot, I think, as creative people about the creative inspiration, mm -hmm. but the discipline that goes into something like singing eight shows a week. I mean, speaking eight shows a week would be a lot, but then you add singing and dancing or whatever the circumstances are. It's a lot. And 
I just got to say, hearing you say that you had such a similar experience, my brain is thinking, here's Angelica saying this, after the TV and film career she's had, after the success she's already experienced, now she's saying, and then live entertainment taught me discipline. And what I love. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> what I love is in our career, when you are someone who gets to go back and forth between live entertainment and film, if you are someone who gets to go back what and a forth. Lesson, yes. It is, you learn everything you need to know about the other from yes. the thing. You know what I, I mean? Was stage, I was on stage and I'm I'm acting for my close-up. There were moments <laughs> Roxy is losing it all and I got a tear ready to drop and doing all the things that like um louder, honey. Uh, uh, you gotta let that this ain't the camera, this ain't there's no mic picking you up. And mind you, I had to work because I'm a theater actor first. So mm-hmm. I had to work on pulling all of this back for yeah. the camera and playing small and making my lines go through like a small little, like me, me and my acting coach, we always mm-hmm. do this thing where I'm trying to like make my lines just go through this little, you know, hole or whatever. And then when I'm on stage, now I'm learning things about film and, vi- and vice versa. But it's, it's for me, I love doing TV. I love doing those things. But being on stage I felt like I had the people in the palm of my hand, you know, every night. And there is nothing like that feeling. Like, I have an addictive personality, more than alcohol, more than weed. I am addicted to that feeling of knowing that the whole audience is with you. Especially when you can like make a gesture and that's enough and that's a to no. get the reaction. Absolutely. And, and you're like, Oh wow, you're really listening to me. And I, I just, you know, I think as queer people, as trans people, you know, uh, we learn to be adaptable. We learn to thrive under crisis mode. We learn to thrive under chaos and I just, you know, it's like we have been through so much shit recently. Mm-hmm. We are under attack currently. Mm-hmm. The world is on fire. There's genocides happening that we're all talking about, but no one's doing anything about. And then on top of that, we just survived COVID and the actors strike. And so there's all these circumstances. And do you know who I know who are living their best life right now? All my queer people, drag queens, and trans friends, like, really? like because because we're like because we're used to yeah, we're welcome, used to the, yes, we're used yes, to just yes. every day being attacked from every direction. Yes. I mean, of course, right now is worse than ever in my Absolutely. lifetime, but I'm also like, but I feel like I feel like there are things that that you can do that. You haven't been doing jinx because uh word on the street to me, word on the street is that you're a witch. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so, true. I mean, couldn't you cast <laughs> a spell and just clean all this up, Jinx? I wish it were that listen, you don't know how much I think about like 
why aren't they letting me fix this? <laughs> like, I'm a Virgo. I, I look at things happening in the world and I'm like, it's common sense. Common like, sense. it just is common sense. But we're not operating with people who are operating from a place of common sense. We're not dealing with people um, who are behaving rationally. We're dealing with people who are completely motivated by agendas. Most of it's money. Most of it's power, mm-hmm. and it's all these but like you know, desperate, unfortunately, desperate grasps. Unfortunately, right now it. though, too, it's a lot of. I, w- I just got off the. I just interviewed uh, Aaron Axelman, who is a co-director for this Israeliism film, and they are also mm-hmm. newly trans. And you know, I, why did I? I just lost my train of thought. <laughs> bringing them up into the conversation that is so dang gone weird uh shoot what were you saying i was connected to, to something that you were saying um uh <laughs> is that oh yeah the trans people like um you know i think we were talking about like being used to the chaos and knowing these things yeah responding to um um uh oh that is common <laughs> You know, all these things. Oh, yeah, it's common sense oh, and we're not supremacy. dealing with people. Oh, yeah, so yes. we're, we're no always, white supremacy. What, no. <laughs> oh, oh, it's always that. Oh, 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 oh white supremacy. I forgot. That, I, that's it's right. just white supremacy. <laughs> no, so I, I know, baby, we're talking about white supremacy candy. Uh, <laughs> but I, that's where I was going with that is that, you know, I talked with Aaron Axelman, um, who is a, a Jewish, trans, uh, newly trans, non-binary Uh, person and the one thing that we were getting at is that all of the things that we're seeing right now so much of what we're seeing is that the anti-semitism and things like that the the against jews and stuff like that was always against them being not considered to be the supreme version of whiteness and and being they weren't near what the you know nazis they they considered their kind of supreme version of whiteness and what we know from the nazis as well is that uh, they also had these pink triangles and went after gender clinics and things like that as well and went after queer and trans people uh, during that Holocaust as well. So because queer, trans, LGBTQ people are not considered to be supreme in the lens of white supremacy. So that's why we have people, if you don't wake up to the ways in which this system affects us all, it's not about white people being the villain or the thing it's about a system of white supremacy that white people and people who are not white benefit from when they align with uh the ways they recognize this is a power dynamic that is affecting us all and i'd rather be in than out and so you have a lot of folks who in some ways participate on that instead of shaking the cage and shaking the system and making things so unfortunately we're going to continue to see this thing where people all of a sudden become activists because things have hit their front door finally, instead of just being in this place where again, even in our own LGBT community, there are people who have not still understood that we need to stick together regardless of our sexual identity or where we are on the spectrum of that, that we have to stick together. How did your coming to the next level of your identity because we all saw you kind of become aware of your transness and for me now i'm gonna put this on the table for me i want to tell rupaul bitch 
it, listen, I'm gonna tell you, girl, they all trans. And the reason why they all trans is because trans is a damn umbrella. And listen, I'm a, I happen to be a transsexual wall. If we want to get like really technical <laughs> about it, we don't have to use that vernacular. But if we want to get technical, I'm a post-op transsexual. If we want to get you know technical, but trans is such an umbrella, and you found yourself underneath that umbrella. What was that like? Again, I'm gonna say first of all, I grew up in Portland, so I have always thought of the word trans as that umbrella you're talking about. And it's only, you know, like in my adult life that I've seen like it all get categorized so much and be so important to put everything into the right category. And I'm like, okay, that's all wonderful, but can we still agree that trans means everyone who's not cis, right? right. Can we just like remember that we're all fighting for the same thing? Because what's been disheartening, you know, is seeing trans people who don't want to who don't want to acknowledge the non-binary struggle. We've seen, you know, like w w there's tons of trans male erasure until there's been more recent like mainstream Absolutely. representation. And so that goes to show how important representation is. It can affect the shifting tides. But ultimately, you know, for me, I just kind of had to, every step of the way, I knew what to believe and what to think and what to tell people about gender and about finding their own identity. And yet I still had rules set up in my mind mm -hmm. about what was okay for me mm -hmm. because I was trying to compare my experience to every other trans experience I had seen in media or that I had access to. But what changed was when I started having real conversations with all different types of trans people, not just trans women, uh, not just people who aligned with the identity I was aligning with, but all trans people. And then I started to realize even my doubts, even my anxieties, even the things that I'm... I thought it was all euphoria. Mm. I thought, <laughs> I didn't realize that there was parts that you might be scared about. You know, I didn't realize that was a normal part of this. Oh, yes. So because I had all these rules set up or I, all these like, preconceived ideas, I kept telling myself, I'm not trans enough to do this. I'm not trans enough to do that. And I'm not feminine enough to. And then I realized if I cast all of those rules out, what do I actually want? And and it became very, very clear. And um, so uh, without giving all the spoilers away, ah. uh, uh, people might expect some changes in the Listen, we love, we, lo we love change. We love change. Uh, you know, the thing I love most about trans people, about transness that people discover is it's actually not about becoming something that you're not. It's literally blossoming and, and into your own existence. It is not to be compared to a different flower yeah. or the way that this person grows or does this. It literally is, I feel like I've gotten to a place as a trans elder to uh, be like an expectant mother. 
what you going to bring us? How are you about to turn it? You know, and, and see just how unique I, you approach that. You know, I just need to take this moment to acknowledge you and what you're talking about, because I saw a video of you explaining the idea of passing privilege. And I have had so many conversations with people about their fears and anxieties uh, uh, about if I transition, what am I going to look like afterwards? And that's a conversation we don't have a lot openly, you know, and we are seeing a lot of representation, but we're seeing a lot of representation that fits certain expectations. So we're not having the conversation as loudly, like, you know, like, Uh, people who don't have access to all of the things that are going to give them the, the ending result, you know, that they see in their head. Like one thing I love, I I (laughs) had the privilege to be on this show called sort of uh, with Bilal and seeing them play this non-binary character in this space and having a show called sort of that just taps on things not having to be so rigidly defined, you know, because I think that when we do that, then you have folks who end up in positions, like you say, you were in at one point where feeling like maybe I'm not trans enough to be doing this, that, or the third. But it's, to me, it's just like, I just want to see you become even more and more in, in yourself rooted in who you are. Did you see, and that's, go ahead, go ahead. Well, That's what I'm seeing in younger people now. And it's not all about transitioning. It's about casting off the rules Mm -hmm. that society put on you. And the reason why I brought up passing privilege is that I see you as someone who could experience a lot of passing privilege, should she so choose. And with that privilege you stand as loudly and as openly as a trans woman to make that difference. Like you were talking about with Chicago. Girl, I could have been married in a gated community to a husband that paid all my bills (laughs) and shut the the hell up and have some stepkids, child. (sighs) Exactly. And it's like, I think about you and Laverne and, and these gorgeous, gorgeous women who have just said since the beginning, like from the get-go, like this is who I am, break, breaking everyone's expectations. And then, and then you make more room and space for all of the people, you know? Like if we were saying we're not, we don't see as much representation of all of the different nuances within the trans community, but, we are seeing representation, which means we can keep widening that that scope mm-hmm. and we can keep broadening that spectrum. And I think the more we take over telling our own stories, the more we're going to do that. And do it better. Okay, so last two questions. And, and, do it I, and I'm going to let you yeah, go because yeah. I could I could literally, okay. literally talk to you forever. Same. You, you have no idea. I, I, there's so many things I want to say, so I'm just going to like kind of fire off a couple things. But one, I just want to give mm-hmm. props. You and Benda LaCreme, um, Benda LaCreme, like, shh. I see you and I see what I love when a queen 
creates her own lane. I love the way you two got together and saw that you both are loony as hell. And like, <laughs> and like your looniness like uh, plays well with each other. So first I want to say like, just congratulations on continuing to create a lane for yourself and showing other people what it takes to create your own spotlight. So that's number one. Two. Oh, thank you very this, much. This is a, a spiritual podcast, you know. I I I I I say that to say that uh, for me uh, as a Buddhist, uh, we always say Buddhism is reason. So a lot of when I talk about spirituality or whatever, it's not so much of a a different conversation. It's based in very real ways in which how we sh our spirits show up and being able to address the moments when our spirit is not doing so well. What are ways, what are things for you that uh, help you spiritually? And I, I, I say this word out there and people who are listening when I talk about spirituality, I want you to continue to decolonize and remove uh, some of these very rigid definitions of religion because spirituality is what you make it. And so yeah. for you, how have you been able to speak to your spirit and 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 have this healthy conversation with your spirit so um my belief when it comes to faith spirituality religion whatever you you define it as is just as long as you chose it for yourself you know, we're having all this talk about things being imposed on kids and, and it's finally starting starting to dawn on people. You know what gets imposed on kids without a word being said about it? Religion, dogma, um, something that could define the rest of your life. <laughs> for real. So I just like choose it for yourself and realize that everyone else gets to choose theirs for themselves too. Um, but... That's great For advice. me, yes. everything comes down to rituals I do, you know, and I, I like to look at everything from a scientific point of view. And then if I was looking at it from a magical or spiritual point of view, what would it be? And then I kind of like marry the two. And I always say that like to believe in magic is a choice, you know, I know how things scientifically work. But I also know that it makes me feel good to light incense and to say a little morning spell or, or, or light, whatever the ritual may be. And so it's like when I thought about my Catholic upbringing and all of the things that made my family cry and feel guilty and ashamed to go to church was like the stuff at the church. But all of the stuff that we did at home, that was the way we empowered ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, that's witchcraft. Like if I strip away the Catholicism, I was actually w raised by witches. Once I <laughs> realized that, I was like, oh, it doesn't matter what it is. It just needs to be something that is part of the solution and not part of the problem. So um, for me, it's all about rituals, daily rituals, and making sure that I meet my daily needs so that I'm bringing my best to what I have to do that day. <laughs> that it, listen, you just got a spiritual lesson from Jinx Monsoon. Not only can she do drag, turn a joke, but she can also lead your spirit. 
to a better place. <laughs> no, listen, I, I absolutely love that. And I love what you said because I truly, truly believe the same thing is that it has to speak to you. At the end of the day, mm-hmm. I can't force my um, beliefs or practices on you or anything like that. What I can say, though, is I will always encourage people, you know, every every religious organization has had to evolve, has had things mm-hmm. that socially were social norms that they had to evolve beyond. But when it comes to Buddhism, it is such like a beautiful poem. Um, I feel like so many things that I read or listen to is these things that reflect back to yourself in being able to see your value clearly and see the value of other people clearly and at least have this respect and understanding that life is not going to work for you if you cannot value yourself and other people. That's like, these are like very fundamental, just basics. It's like you're walking around and you can't see the value in other people uh, who may not have certain skills or abilities or looks or this, that, and the third. And I bet you there's somewhere in your life where you are overlooking your own value because you're participating in that kind of behavior, you know? So mm-hmm. I, I think whatever it is, like you said, it should bring us to the better parts of ourselves. It should be both part of the solution and not a part of the problem. Yeah. Well, I mean, I feel like so many people will stand behind something they believe in, but as soon as something inconveniences them or or they're actually tested or made uncomfortable Uh for a moment Uh that's when you find out what actually is important to them and that's why I'm you know that's why I can get really fired up about what I feel is like false allyship where you're acting like you're there to be a, a part of the solution but then you pose the same tired questions that we've been asked a million times that you should know better than to even bring into the conversation if you actually want to be part of the solution. Or if you, you know, we've seen so many comedians, yes. <laughs> so many male comedians and actors <laughs> who like have gone on tirades that you wouldn't expect from them, but it's because someone asked them like, oh, could you actually be a little bit more sensitive to this? And it starts as maybe a small request, but then it be- gets so blown up because they can't believe that they were, <laughs> they, they, they the person who's always been so helpful. Yeah, exactly like but i've been helpful i've been on your side and it's like then you should be okay with a a minor inconvenience you know like you can't be an ally on the sunny pretty days (laughs) and the second it starts to drizzle you're like oh you got this right you got this (laughs) i'm I'm so glad that you mentioned that and said that because i think it is up to us as community You know, uh, I learned from this author, Peter Block, he wrote this book called Community, and he says that the admission price for community is accountability. And I think that there's so many allies who want to be in community with us and say they have a gay friend or a trans friend or a drag friend or all this, whatever. And there, I'm your ally. I'm cool. But then they're not wanting to be a part of the accountability relationship in which you call yourself an ally. So let's hold you accountable to that allyship. Um, so thank you for speaking up because I do feel like um, 
many times, whether we it's a racist joke, whether it's a homophobic thing, whether it's a whatever it is, a lot of things continue because of our unwillingness to hold each other accountable. Yeah. Well, that's the number one thing that allies can be doing right now is when you hear that stuff, even if that person is your friend from college or even if that person, you know, like that's the thing is like we make excuse after excuse after excuse not to give a shit about other people. You know, oh, they don't think the same way as me. They don't look the same way as me. They don't dress the same way as me. I don't have to, I don't have to give them the same respect. And it's that mentality that we've been conditioned to find normal, you know, like, I mean, at the very, very beginning of this, you talked about the segregation in Chicago between um like within the drag scene absolutely now i had been going to chicago for years and performing at one bar um because that was the bar that hired me and i can't remember what year it was but i had um the bar manager from that bar that booked me take me on a little bit of a tour because i was like i realized i never saw all of and when i got to berlin it was a completely different scene. And I was like, I've seen Chicago how many times and did not know this scene was also here. Mm-hmm. And that's crazy to me within the queer community. Just across the street, that though. That still happens. Just across the street. <laughs> I worked at the Kit Kat Lounge in Chicago for years. Mm-hmm. Just across the street, they would have this place called, I think it was Circuit or one of these places. I can't remember. But. Even just so you would just across the street on only on certain nights, you know, uh, black and brown people knew that we could go to certain bars, but there were on the south side of Chicago, there are, you know, different clubs and, and it's like, there's also different HIV and LGBTQ organizations. And you see that the funding sources are just so completely different. The, the, the priorities in the neighborhood and what we call boys town in Chicago is prioritize those of us who can afford a cute brownstone or apartment or what have you who are complaining about the trans people and queer people who are transient on the streets because they are loud up and down the street all at all times of the night and it's wonderful but those are the things that even our elders if they would think back a little bit for a minute that was what was so special about finding the um the rainbow on that street yeah. and realizing it's late and they still going. There's still a place for me to be. Like I can hang out with friends. I can, you know, find something. Now, and of course there's, you know, without proper sort of guidance and things like that, we can all get into a, a little bit of trouble in, in these neighborhoods. But, you know, I, 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 it is my hope, hope and prayer that not just that we not just, bring up more accountability with our allies, but we bring up a conversation of accountability to each other, a trans person to trans person, um, gay person to gay person. And across those intersections, we need to be better allies to each other. Yeah. And that requires the willingness to get a little bit uncomfortable to get uh, to to realize that there are going to mo- going to be moments where you're going to have to sacrifice a little bit of your comfort so that we can all share 
in more comfort together. Like, girl, you know? It should be like, girl, is it that uh, uncomfortable to watch a movie with subtitles on it? Do you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can, you, can I have one of the armrests, please? You know, it's that kind of stuff. And, and when we say ally, you know, I think sometimes this happens in our brain. We hear ally and it's like, oh, well, I'm queer. So we're talking about someone else. But ally means someone who shows up for the people who need to be shown up for. You know, we're all an ally. Like I might be queer and trans, but I'm white. So I need to be an ally to my um, queer and trans people of color within my community, you know? So we all need to think about who we need to be an ally to Mm -hmm. and think about, I need to be okay with getting a a little bit... (laughs) Just no one's saying you don't get any of the pie. No one's even saying you get less. We're just saying right now you might need to like you, you might need to be a little patient. You know, you might need to have to wait a little longer in line. There's no diamond elite for this. Sorry, there's not like a, there's no a first class. frequent flyer. Right? Yeah. There's no first class for equality, right? I, <laughs> that I, goes against the point, it's, right? It's like being on the Titanic when that lady was asking, <laughs> where, is there a first class section of this raft? <laughs> exactly. So until we're all off the boat, we don't get to we don't get to do that and, and and that's what our community really needs to see from all the division that is happening all around us like the least we can do is come together absolutely, you know? absolutely. From, <laughs> it's what we need from the lips of jinx monsoon <laughs> the very least that we can do is come together thank you so much jinx again for saying yes for doing thank this you. for sharing your energy and your spirit it is such a joy uh, to watch you, to watch you be in the moment um, from your Little Miss Piggy moment to, <laughs> to to Chicago, to just whatever is next for you. I am going to be watching. We're all going to be watching. Know that I am one of your fans. I will always be one of your fans. Anytime you need me, I'm here. So just just know that if you need it, if you need a girl to bust a bottle, you need a girl to uh, to share something, to fight, to pick up a brick, you know, whatever the case is. I'm one of those girls. Well, I hope you know that the feeling is mutual. Thank you. And you can call on me whenever. And I just, you know, I knew, I knew this interview would be great today because I was watching this um, clip of you and Laverne Cox on TMZ outside a club. Girl. And I, I, I'd misquote it if I tried to misquote it, but you, I mean, if I tried to quote it, but you two said so much without saying anything to each other. Like you said little things and if you know, you know, but it was like watching you two have a conversation without saying much. I was like, that is that universal thing. Yeah. I was like, even though I'm anxious and nervous to talk to someone, I absolutely worship. I'm like, Aww. but we're gonna have we're that. Gonna have, we're gonna absolutely, have that. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I hope to, uh, you know, I hope to have you on again and have a conversation with you again in the future. Yeah. You know, we're, we're this platform. We're going to constantly be not only just talking to people, but also raising uh, awareness around all kinds of issues. So, just thank you for constantly using your platform to entertain us as well as to keep <laughs> us informed. I really appreciate that. Same to you, Angelica. <laughs> Everybody, we will be right back. All right. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Jinx as much as I did. 
If you don't know, Jinx will be returning to Broadway to revive her role as Miss Mama Morton, I think this summer, but it was also recently announced that she will also be playing Audrey. I think that's the character's name, Audrey, in an off-Broadway production of Little Shop of Horrors. Work, Jinx. I'm going to be doing my best to come see you in New York. All right, folks, that's our show for today. But before we go, I'm just going to drop another Buddhist breadcrumb and talk a little bit about time and capacity. I've talked about this often with my friends, but this has really been one of those helpful Buddhist lessons for me personally. Often we ask ourselves, when is the right time to do something, to take action or to speak up? In Nichiren Buddhism, the time is always now. No opportunity wasted. But what varies is the capacity both our own capacity and the capacity of the environment and the people in it. So one way to make the most out of every single opportunity is to take a second and assess the time and capacity. Do the people that you're engaging with have the capacity to take in all that you have to offer? How much time do you have or energy or capacity do you have to offer? Because sometimes we can pour into people that have the capacity. And sometimes we find ourselves pouring into people who don't have the capacity to receive what we're trying to offer. But with practice, you can become a person who is in perfect measure with their response to life and to the people in your lives. So this week, I want you to make the most out of each moment by taking a second to assess your capacity and the capacity of the environment that you're in and then take action to do the best of your ability. No opportunity wasted.